Hello, everyone. You are listening to episode 264 of the App Percussion Podcast. My name is Ksenia Komljanovic, and with me are my lovely co-hosts, as always, Ben Charles. Hey, Ksenia. Hey, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How was your Thanksgiving? It was great, but not quite as good as yours. I think you you won something. Can you tell us what you won? Oh, I did a uh, I did a local 5K little turkey trot, and I was very pleased. It was the first time I ever broke 22 minutes, uh, less than 22 minutes on a 5K. Um, and then I made surf and turf for Thanksgiving dinner. So that was very good. Good job. Awesome. Awesome. Congrats. Congrats. And you beat everyone in your age group. We're all so proud of you. You are our superhuman uh, here in this <laughs> crew. Um, and we have Carly Vigna. Hey, Ksenia. I did not win anything this weekend. That's <laughs> well, that's new for you. You know, <laughs> so that's good. I had to take one weekend off, you know. You have to take one weekend <laughs> off. I was going to say, Carly, I remember when we were in Miami, uh, we, we all got together for Thanksgiving one year and we were asking our Panamanian friend, Pedro, uh, so what are you doing for Thanksgiving? He's like, I, I don't celebrate Thanksgiving. It's not my holiday. <laughs> and it was kind of like, you know, asking a Jewish person, what, what are you doing for Christmas? So Carly, with uh, Felipe being Colombian, what what's Thanksgiving like in your household? Yeah, we do Thanksgiving. We always do it small, usually just the two of us. So this year wasn't much different, but I've never actually done a full turkey. Um, we do turkey cutlets every year. It's like easy. We only have one day of leftovers and then we can move on. We, you know, we do pretty much, pretty much normal stuff, normal Thanksgiving. But it's true. You know, it's funny. We think like sometimes we're like so U.S. centric and think like, oh, everyone around the world celebrates Thanksgiving. But like, no, that's um, it's just us. There were actually there were soccer matches on, on Thursday. And I asked Felipe like, wait. Or do they do this every year on Thanksgiving? There's soccer, and he's like, "No, it's just Thursday." <laughs> no, <laughs> I was like, yeah. of course, like even still, I think these things do. Yeah, that's the, that is very U.S. centric. I get asked very frequently, "Do we celebrate Thanksgiving in Serbia?" And we really, no, no, it's very tied to American history. Um, but anyway, uh, Curly, you get to tell us what happened in history today because we're yeah. releasing on a special date. Well, this is actually, yeah, our release date is December 31st, um, and the the historical event to talk about today actually took effect on midnight on January 1st, 1941, but this kind of, you know, came into effect kind of December 31st, 1940. Um, so anyway, January 1st, midnight, 1941 marks the beginning of a 10-month radio boycott of all music licensed by ASCAP, otherwise known as the American Society of Publishers and Composers. Um, and basically what happened is BMI, which is Broadcast Music Incorporated, was created as a rival to ASCAP to be the radio industry's own music licensing agency. So we've probably heard about ASCAP and BMI, but maybe not known too much about the history. So for a little background, um, ASCAP was created in 1914, and it was created to enforce the 1897 copyright law, which basically says that if music is being performed for profit, you have to have the consent of the copyright owners. So this was really simple when it was all live performance, you know, theater owners would just pay ASCAP a percentage of their ticket sales, but it became a lot more complicated with radio because you couldn't tell how many listeners are actually listening at any given time. So let's see, in 1932, ASCAP set a standard fee of 5% of a radio station's advertising revenue. And this became like, well, this is what the fee is. And that, that held for a little while. But in 1940, ASCAP got a little greedy and wanted to triple these fees. So I guess they wanted to go up to 15%. Um, and radio stations were just flat against this. 
and made all kinds of arguments like similar things to what we hear today sometimes that exposure from the radio airtime actually helped increase you know record sales and all of that and it's like that that classic exposure arg argument um but anyway bmi during this time, um, you know, when during the 10-month the boycott, BMI was actively seeking out music from composers who were not already contracted with ASCAP, so kind of less established, younger, lesser-known composers to fill the airwaves, but the radio broadcasters also had to rely on music from the, the public domain, um, and I, I read that Time Magazine said the song I Dream of Jeannie with the Light Brown Hair was played so much that Jeannie's hair turned gray. Um, and also there was a lot, a lot more music from other countries that wasn't licensed by ASCAP already, like Latin American music became more common and the so-called hillbilly music that ASCAP didn't license because they're a little um, elitish maybe. So one impact of this boycott was that so many radio programs could no longer play their theme songs. So substitute theme songs had to be found. Um, and some other shows chose themes that were in the public domain already altogether. Like we think about the Lone Ranger theme, which was William Tell Overture, um, or the Green Hornet's use of Flight of the Bumblebee. So this was just like a workaround, uh, these copyright laws at the time. Um, so ultimately in 1941, the negotiations took place from February all the way until October. It was a 10 month boycott. And ASCAP signed a deal at the end of it with NBC agreeing to 2.75% of the revenue from network broadcasts and 2.25% from local, local station programs, which was like half of the 5% they were getting before they decided to ask for 15% um, in 1940. But musically, the lasting effects were that the, what, was, what was broadcast on radios is popular music wasn't just the ASCAP composers anymore. Um, and it kind of popularized Western music that came Sick from what they call hillbilly, um, R&B, which later led to the development of rock and roll. So that was like, that's huge. Um, and also Latin music became more popular and more common on the airwaves. So what happened was the popular music in the US at the time just became more diverse, which led to, you know, sure the development of so many things we listen to now. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Oh, that's crazy. That is really interesting. Um, it's, I think I've, I've maybe mentioned it on the podcast before, but it's interesting to me to, uh, talking to my music appreciation class that like in the time of Beethoven, if you wanted to hear Beethoven, you, you had to go somewhere where they were playing Beethoven. And uh, there were actually, I remember learning about music history at like sheet, uh, piano reductions were really popular. Like people could get the piano reduction of Beethoven's fifth and play that at home. And that's how they experienced that music. And it's, it's fascinating, like, we, I don't think about it too much, but like in the 20th century, music actually like literally could spread in, in different ways with things like radio and jukeboxes and obviously licensing would play into that. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really uh, interesting development of, of music and dissemination, but that's, that's really cool. Um, thank you, Carly, so much. I think we heard a little bit of Casey Cangelosi's voice somewhere in Turboen in there. Um, so Casey, if you're out there, we're, we're here with you. Um, come join us whenever you can. But I now get to go on because we have a very special guest today. Um, he's a dear friend and a baddest performer who, by the way, I had to ask three times before he agreed to come on to this show. But, you know, third time's a charm and never give up on your dreams, Maple. Just keep bugging those folks that you want to talk to. Um, our guest has won the first prize and the audience award at the 68th International 
ARD music competition in 2018. He also won the first prize at Trump 2018. He has performed all over Europe as a soloist with orchestras and we expect him to come to other continents as soon as things reopen. Um, recently, he published a beautiful solo album debut, uh, Fair Wind, uh, which you can find on all streaming platforms, and you should definitely check it out. Um, however, you could have also heard him on some of the Wave Marimba Quartet recordings previously, so it's not like this is the first recording uh, session that he's ever had. But all in all, our guest, although very young, has already solidified his presence among the percussion titans. And everyone, I have the distinct pleasure to welcome the one, the only, Kai Strobel. Hi, Kai. Hi, Xenia. Thanks for the invite. Finally, we managed. Huh? Finally, you have a little bit of time. It took a pandemic for us to find yeah, you literally. somehow. <laughs> yeah. How are you doing these days? Where are you at the moment? How, how's life? How's Thanksgiving in Germany? No, just kidding. How's life? Uh, Thanksgiving was actually sleeping out and not practicing, but baking. <laughs> so nice. Alternatively, <laughs> yes, this is. But it's nice. It's great. And uh, yeah, currently I'm in Austria again. I was touring right now or trying to tour around between Germany and Austria. Um, because of some parallel projects I wanted to do or I managed actually to do. But uh, everything was quite spontaneous and a lot to organize because, of course, the border problem is in Europe quite uh, problematic. So even for me, with two residencies in Austria and in Germany, traveling is also very difficult. And then there's always the tendency of going into quarantine, which is then not affordable to have the project because I cannot stay for two weeks just at home. Yeah. Um, so it was a lot to organize, but all in all, I managed. And now finally, yeah, as no projects are going to happen now, I, the next project is going to be now in February. So, yeah, Christmas is about to come. <laughs> you get to spend a little bit more of downtime and relax and plan exactly. more. Exactly. The last I saw you was that you were a hologram in the most recent Trump uh, competition and you had a wonderful performance uh, with your chamber group, Boom Percussion, but can, and a dancer. Um, but can you tell us, how did you become a hologram? How did that work out? I mean, because of the pandemic, of course, all the competitions basically got declined and uh, like postponed for next year. So RD, for example, was supposed to happen this year again in different um uh, instrumental groups of course then percussion percussion was last year um, but everything got declined but trump said okay either way uh, we will actually do it the competition is going to happen this time um, but everything had to happen uh, yeah alternatively i think arthur said something already already something in a previous podcast i think yep so everything was online yes um and the history of Trump was always that the previous winner of the previous edition is going to contribute something in the finals performance uh, to when the finalists already played. And then there's, of course, a time gap where the jury has to um, yeah, decide and talk who's going to be second, first, third, whatever. Um, and they wanted me to be there, of course, too. But now with Corona, everything got very alternatively. They tried to make me actually be there in person. This was the last uh, yeah, update, like four weeks before, so in October. But I knew already it's actually not going to happen because, of course, cases were rising up in Germany. 
and Holland too. So it was quite clear that either way, I think it's not gonna happen in person to participate on the stage. Yeah. Um, and then in the end, we decided together to do the same with me, with my performance time there, then with the finalists to make it in a hologram, in a hologramic way. And um, yeah, <laughs> in the end, in there were some complications, I think, on the tape uh, and everything. So it was everybody was, of course, in incredible stress to manage everything on stage. Uh, I think how's it called? The the electronic problems and the organization was of course a lot to manage the orchestra life the soloists the finalists life like sort to yeah. say um but either way actually they managed to make this competition happen and this is especially in the in this times quite an accomplishment i think yeah they did a they did a fantastic job uh, and i was so grateful to be able to watch the whole thing i mean i would wake up at 2 a.m to watch the preliminary round and see what's up um but they did a fantastic thing and i think that holographic performance was really quite intriguing um i mean yours was just wonderful and it's actually really difficult when you're watching especially from that camera that's a little bit further away everyone should check this out if they haven't already it's actually difficult to, to tell that you are not physically present there. It's, it's really well done. Um, but of course, you cannot really zoom in or see the details. That's, I think, what we, what we missed. But given how little time they had to organize this, and this was the first edition, they did a spectacular job just getting the competition going and still providing everyone with this opportunity. So that's amazing. Yeah, uh and congratulations. You are now just like uh, Michael Jackson. <laughs> 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 just like <laughs> as big of a star <laughs> um all right ben you had a some facebook question for us well yeah we we had actually three people ask basically the the same question um so i'll read all their names we had jacob wh from facebook and then on instagram we had some mad vibes and thomas perk uh, I'll ask basically the same question of, Dear Kai, love your playing. How do you practice and memorize big pieces such as Merlin or Rebonds? All the best. And then uh, I, was I would like to actually add to that a little anecdote uh, that maybe you could would be helpful to expand on. I have a friend that studied with Keiko Abe in Japan, and she said that everyone, all of Keiko's students, uh, you, you have to memorize the pieces and you get one hour a day to practice. And so it was like, how do you manage that? She said, well, basically you do everything you can outside of the practice room. Like you have to decide on your stickings. You can like sort of like get the outline of the piece at the piano. And then when you go in, you're using only your marimba chops. You're not doing all that other analyzing. So maybe that, that could help with a, a start. But yeah, so how do you memorize such huge pieces and especially multi-percussion pieces that all have different setups? Mm, I mean, basically it's uh, it's, the general process of learning by doing you just have to repeat this is at least how i'm uh, starting memorizing pieces is just repeating the pieces over and over again um piece which i also recorded now in the cd uh Rebon a for example is a piece which can be very difficult to memorize uh, because of course you have just drums let's say uh, and sometimes when you finish on the wrong drum, you finish uh, three pages before where you just started because <laughs> yeah. of motorics mixing them up in your brain. Um, but what I'm really doing is always just starting page by page um, until, first of all, motorics are established. So I know what my left hand is doing and my right hand's positioning is clear. And the next thing then is, of course, um, learning the pages 
like um, having them mentally always in my head. So I know, okay, for example, Rebo A has six pages and the, six, the first page has six lines and the rest have eight. And then I'm playing first, second, third, and so on. So I'm always having a certain movie actually happening in my head. So even when the motorics are happening on a, yeah, I end up on a different drum in a performance, I still know I'm in the third page on the fifth line, for example. The next thing is, of course, the uh, musical uh, layer. So I know, of course, the melody line, which I want to establish, which is always easy when you play on your own setup, a, a thing which I actually all the time do. Um, it, for Rebon, for example, it happened only once at PASIC last year, Xenia. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was there. You've, you've been <laughs> there, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Where I, of course, played on drums, which were... Um, of course, which I didn't bring, it was sponsored by Pearl. Um, and also then, of course, different shells, different skins. So a real different tone for me. And this was a bit difficult because I had to disable my ear. Like, because I was used mm -hmm. to, of course, play the piece in my own tuning of the drums, because I'm always touring with my own. And, uh, and then I had a totally different harmony. And it was really funny for me. It happened really just once in this case that I had really had to disable my own ear to a certain degree right. to really get more into the reading and um, um, motorical system, not to get kicked out because I imagined a total different sound on this tom number one or something like this, you know, um, and uh, it was quite funny, but this is really something which really helps me. So I have three layers, uh, scores in my head, motorics uh, and the ear. It's, it's interesting what you said about like knowing where things are on the page and all. And it reminds me of uh, Shi Yi Wu, I know, has her students like for a marimba solo lay out all the pages on the floor. So it's all like one continuous piece and you can literally like walk through the piece and, and see it. So that's cool. Yeah, especially for Rebon, actually, it's uh, sometimes I'm feeling like a, a, a ski race driver, you know. Because there is, especially when you go to the last page, it's the most difficult one and uh, you need to prepare, you need to spare energy, not to give everything in the beginning, then you get tired or something like this. And then in the end, there's the uh, grand finals. So you need to prepare yourself. And for me, I feel really like a race driver because you build up all the, the pace and then it's the last three, four turns where you need to keep the energy and be concentrated. And if you get loose before, then you get lost and scratch everything but the right things um and uh, yeah for me it's really about keeping the pace keeping drive and being being stable and uh, yeah helps always for me that's awesome that's very detailed thank you so much because most people tell us well i just i just do it <laughs> sort of the the, uh, the end result is like I was touched by the finger of God and I can't convey this to you mortals. <laughs> and, you know, you, you've had the same uh, talents, but you know what you're doing, which we really appreciate. Thank you. <laughs> no, I think, I think especially the more program you have actually to play, the more you're asked to perform yeah, full recital one and a half hours through, you really need to know how to function because sometimes there's whatever you have to build up your instrument finally alone. So actually you're already tired when you, before you actually play. Uh, so you need to know how your body reacts and how your brain reacts also um, impact by whatever circumstances. Um, and the more you know yourself and the more yeah, problems can occur, then you can also go back to, okay, I'm functioning exactly with this agenda. So then, especially with problems next to you, still you find your middle, your center, and you're good to go. 
Cool. Um, that's so, it's so lovely to hear. And like Ksenia said, just great to hear you be so aware of the whole process um, and be able to, to communicate it so effectively. Um, Kai, we have a question from one of our listeners, Benson Kwan. And actually, it's, it's kind of a two-part question. I think I'll ask it that way. We'll do part one and then part two ask, uh, after. And Benson asks, what other musicians have inspired your musicality and interpretation? Yeah, I mean, first of all, of course, um, my teachers. Um, because of course this is the first role models we immediately i think i can speak for everybody we have um so i had for example my first lessons until i was 18 i think or 19 with marta klimasara in stuttgart where i'm coming from originally mm-hmm. um so i was her private student from the age of five when she was still a student herself then she got oh, wow. the professorship uh, then i changed as a pre-student I don't know if this exists in the US actually, but it's like a program, you go still to school, you go to high school, let's say, um, but you already have the possibility to take classes in the college, to be part of really um, a college program, performances and things. So I was already, while in school, um, already in the professional area of education. Um, and then I finished school and then I started studying in Austria with Bogdan Bakanu and Leonhard Schmiedinger which became my next of course role models and uh, mentors actually um, but also the older I got of course the more it was important to me I mean, also this was what I was always told here in Austria too to look more to the left and more to the right also out of the corner of percussion let's say so I found a corner for myself, especially in piano music and in guitar music, actually, um, which is for me always very refreshing because you have then you can have literature from instruments which are older than you or which are yeah more diverse actually, because our percussion literature basically is effectively yeah let's say we're generously 100 years old let's say in chamber yeah. music and solo. And of course, these other instruments have more history, more literature. They have also gone through processes um, which, yeah, we percussionists still need to go, I think. Or yeah. Um, and for me, it was always refreshing to see um, or to combine then elements from guitar literature with their nice curly, uh, pearly, sorry, pearly arpeggi on the marimba, um, sometimes very difficult, but also possible. Um, and um, piano with its rich sounds, of course. Um, so I was really listening always to more literature outside the percussion scene, actually. Hmm. Is there any music for, this is not Benson's question, this is just from me, any music for piano or guitar that you have discovered recently um, that you're very excited about? Uh, I got excited now actually about the second movement of the Istom suite of Debussy because I was um, already one year ago now um, arranging, or it was now two, I think, uh, arranging the first movement of the Istom suite, Pagod. Um, and now I was searching for more literature. And I was um, yeah, really struggling through the romantic uh, area of, of piano literature and figured out that actually the range of sound is already too wide to match it for percussion or for mallets, especially now in this case. Um, and then by accident, actually, I figured out uh, or I came across again over the second movement of the, of the Storm Suite, 
which is uh, La Soiree uh, do Grenade, the evening in uh, Granada is a Spanish city. Um, and the nice anecdote to it is that my girlfriend is Spanish and she's coming from Granada. And uh, it was very many coincidences, let's say. I was listening to it and it's like, why didn't I come to this piece to arrange it or to listen to it more often? I totally forgot the second movement somehow of the full suite. And then I came across by it by accident. And it was too many coincidences at the same time. So of course, I'm arranging this piece now for sure. <laughs> so <laughs> what I'm or what I did now was I arranged this movement now too. Also for three percussionists, actually, for two marimbas and one vibraphone and small percussion, but really less, I think, tambourine and castanets. Um, and this is the, let's say, this was also in Corona times, my parallel project, which I was thinking like, oh, nice music, let's dig into it. And of course, it's more in a habanera rhythm. So it's also a little bit with spices and everything. So <laughs> it was nice. That's very nice. That sounds lovely. Um, part, part two of Benson's question actually was, what's the one thing that musicians around the world should improve on or explore more of? And then Benson also writes, your Merlin performance on YouTube is just the most stunning recording I've ever heard. So incredible. I think you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the, the, the Merlin recording happened in, in the Trump competition two years ago, which he's referring to. Um, it was always a piece for me, which was very strong, a strong point of my literature. Um, I can now say, honestly, I'm not thinking to play it in the next times in my repertoire because my, my main focus shifted now in the genre, let's say. Um, so Merlin was always, for example, it's a, it's a very expressive a very virtuous piece because of its speed because of its extremes if you play them in the dynamics um but it is right now let's say not a piece which i would normally play now in a in a recital let's say um why but not it, yeah i think Style-wise, I think there's right now better pieces fitting in my repertoire, which are complementary. Because then, I don't know, then, for example, what I'm playing right now a couple of times is attraction for marimba, vibes and junk percussion. Um, one study, one summary, for example, two, which are also strong pieces, but on a different, on a, let's say, less contemporary way. And for the real contemporary aspects, I'm playing in also different literature. So I took a little bit distant from this piece. Um, but nevertheless, for example, for Trump, for the final, it was perfect because it's one of my strong points. It's uh, fulfilling, let's say, all the necessities to be a representative final performance for myself. Um, but I have to say, I know that in Trump, I managed to start in a very fast tempo. <laughs> And then I was like, okay, what I start, I have to finish. <laughs> there is no rubato tempo here. <laughs> yeah. And it was impressive. And you always perform it so well. But I'm glad that that's not, you know, you don't see that as your only card. You, you're sort of like, yeah, that serves a purpose. I, I do that well. But here's this other stuff that I'm interested in exploring. Yeah. The thing is, the thing is that um, I was always maybe because of my physicality, I knew or I know that I'm a fast player. I know how to play fast. Um, 
so when you're young and ambitious, I don't know, I mean, I'm not now old, but let's say when I was, I don't know, 20, 22, something like this, I was like, okay, I can play, I can play fast, let's do it. Um, and now I'm older and I know that I can play fast, but it's also not everything. Um, and right now I'm just finding counterpoints for myself in my literature. I played a lot of pieces which were fast and virtuous. And also for my CD, it was very important for me to present myself different, like going in a total different direction, more with sound, uh, yeah, sound clouds, more with really big sound volume and not the fast, speedy sound all the time, um, to be really more diverse and to show what actually percussion can be also, like really playing horizontal, long phrases with uh, yeah, a lot of sound and uh, less, less percussive on mallets. This I can do then on setups too. Getting back to Benson's question just for a minute, is there anything that comes to mind? Is there one thing you think, Kai, that should that musicians around the world should be improving on or exploring more um, throughout? It's a big question. It's a, it's a very big question. <laughs> um, the only thing actually I can think about is, or which I realized about myself is I was practicing a lot, like really a lot alone, always very focused uh, for us as percussionists in the cellar. So not charming setup, but yeah, okay. Um, but the older you get, the more you realize that this is not everything. Um, and I, this is something which I can then also recommend is that you really go out of the cellar of practicing all the time alone by yourself and uh, really do something completely different, which is fulfilling you like personally on a total different level. If you're into hiking, go hiking. If you're going, if you're, you like to go into the cinema, go for the cinema or you know best example to stay in the frame uh you stay yeah you go into the opera literature attend opera rehearsals really to dig into the process even this was also helping me especially uh, because i played actually a lot in the orchestra parallelly to my solo career um so yeah what improved my playing always was really yeah apart from the playing actually yeah listening participating meeting people something like this which was not related to my actual process of performing let's say but it helped me as a person a lot well you think about you have to you have to have lived your life to be able to create music that expresses life right i remember hearing that when i was younger and thinking like but wait i still need to put my hours in how do i balance those things but absolutely it's very very good advice yeah. I mean, there's also, I mean, people with, yeah, let's say uh, 18 telling things like, yeah, I don't want to practice. I want to experience things. And it's like, yeah, okay, I understand you. But first of all, give the, you know, with 18, you're also very endurable, changeable, you really easy to change things, especially when everything is with 25, 26 established in your body and in your head. Uh, it's not so easy to change it anymore. And to young people, I always recommend Go for it, practice, do it, you know, and uh, if you already made your homework, you know how everything works, then you can also continue living more outside of the box. Absolutely.
Well, going back to that Merlin performance for a second, I just wanted to mention that that Kai is one of the the people in the world that has the wingspan for the end of that piece. <laughs> so <laughs> if anyone's familiar with the end of Merlin, uh, it stretches the entire length of a 4.6 octave marimba. And <laughs> I was I was in a lesson with with William Mersch, who that piece was written for, and I was playing the Bach F major invention that has the, the hands spread not that far apart, but pretty far apart. And I asked him, like, how, how do you do this? Like, how do you do pieces like this or Merlin? And he was very proud to stand up and say, well, I can actually reach it, which I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so congrats, Kai, on your amazing wingspan on Merlin. I think that really sells the performance. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, one thing I noticed uh, in Kai's playing and a, a couple other people actually asked questions about this. Um, so again, I'll just sort of mash the questions together but we had instagram questions from igor tiozo and grigory osipov that both both basically asked the same thing uh one said what's the philosophy behind your strokes and grigory said i am really curious how someone can achieve such gigantic phrases with his movements have you been taught to play with really distinctive gestures from the beginning or have you played like uh, excuse me or you played like other mortals and then transformed your technique if so, how much time did it take you to learn this approach and how does it require physical preparation and stretching? Maybe you could provide some tips on how to start working in this direction. I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, and then Antek Olesik said, what are some good gym exercises for faster marimba chops? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. This is now a lot. <laughs> um, what was the first question now again? I forgot the first one. Basically, basically how did you develop this? Uh, and I'm, I'm sure it has a lot to do with Bogdan, but this very fluid but very large marimba technique. Um, the main thing basically is that we took the marimba or like mallets in general is also one reason why i went in the end for studies with bogdan and leo is that the approach on the instruments leo is percussionist and timpanist let's say adjusted you know and bogdan for mallets of course um and the thing is that the philosophy is the same um and i learned a lot um on technique on the on the marimba through Bogdan, but his philosophy comes from orchestra, from timpani playing, and the approach how to play the mallets is the same how to play the timpani. It's with with weight, with arm balance, with weight, with ankles, how to handle sticks and everything. Um, so the approach is basically nothing special, but comes as you would play the timpani, just of course, with different hardware, um, but basically um, not putting instruments as this is exactly snare drum technique, and this is now timpani technique, and this is now microphone technique, and this marimba, and you're like, and you don't know what to play now anymore with your fingers and what with your arm or, you know, um, and it was for me always clear um, that everything is basically coming from the same origin. Of course, the hardware is different. So you need to have, of course, in fine details, always a certain uh, yeah, individual mindset about it. But the general aspect about it is just that everything is the same physical sound production. Everything is stroke and then vibrating on. Um, and yeah, so let's say if I play or if I have the possibility to play timpani then i'm playing the same timpani as i would play mallets let's say you know um yeah and it helped me like this very to also be very strict in my mind especially when you perform for example best 
example now RD, where you have to play really a lot of instruments. You have to prepare, in my case, three different setups, vibraphone, marimba, uh, multi-percussion on body percussion or whatever. Uh, you need to have a really big snare drum timpani as well. You need to have a lot of inventory in your technique and you need to know what to apply for what. Um, and it, for me, as everything was coming from the same direction, from the same approach, um, it was really uh, yeah, helping me out a lot, let's say. What about the gym thing? Tell oh. us what you do at the gym, guys. <laughs> we finally got to the important question. Yes, I see. I see. Okay, the gym thing is, so a little background information, uh, is that I was a little bit chubby when I was a teenager because my mom is cooking very good. <laughs> good job. Yes, it is. Uh -huh. And... Uh, I was, um, yeah, having in my puberty getting scoliosis, so my spine is turned, which was um, at some point really painful for me to practice snare drum. So you're sitting stable in one position, in the best case, you're leaning forward. Uh, and after five minutes, my spine was painful. And you cannot sit stable or you cannot focus on your two hands if you're actually unconsciously uh, evading pain in your spine and you're moving and then you realize, okay, actually, why I'm sitting like this now? Um, so it was a thing for me to find strategies for myself, how to build up background muscles when I don't need to take care now of, you know, I want to focus on my snare drum technique, but I cannot because I'm in pain. You can never succeed, I think. So um, I found sports as the cure, of course. Um, and uh, basically from this point, I started to do from cycling, running, um and yeah and uh, when in early age also evading until this point evading weights um but at some point i actually started playing solo recitals of over an hour including building down and upset things setups instruments whatever loading them into the car and then it was the same i was like everything is burning and you're like okay let's play fresh <laughs> okay um, and I also realized, actually, let's start, let's try, you know, making weights and build up a little bit of muscles that you're actually really, yeah, also preventing your tendons and, you know, to stay fresh and not get unhealthy because you lift the conga over the setup mm -hmm. or the classics, you know. Um, so I was starting using weights, never like weightlifting, bodybuilding. I mean, this is far away from this, but um, just to really do a little bit more than I was used to do um, to stay healthy. And it really helped me a lot because in the moment you can lift yourself, I don't know, 15 times, then lifting the conga, I don't know, 10 seconds, easy. Yeah. And you're still yeah, able to play Rebond after, you know, and you're not, oh, it's coming. Um, but yeah, for me, this was the physical approach was the, let's say the main focus. And then I realized, um, actually also, I feel very fresh mentally to get out of the cellar to really, you know, sweat it out. I'll also the adrenaline and what is it? Cortisol, <laughs> what, what you have inside of your body <laughs> in practice yeah. sessions. Um, and it's, yeah, it, yeah, became somehow my hobby which of course, because of Corona cannot happen now. So I'm doing it now at home, still trying to be fit and movable. Um, but yeah, it helped me really physically and mentally in the end at the same. 
Wonderful. Uh, I, I, I loved, I mean, when I met uh, Kai uh, finally in person at that uh, PASIC, the last one that happened in person, um, I just had so many questions. They were very similar in nature, like, how did you become so fast? What are you doing? What are, how, do, how did you play this? How do you play that? And he always responds very directly, which is so, so refreshing. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredible. Um, I, uh, well, we have many more questions that we want to go through. Through. But I guess I wanted to ask um, sort of a, a follow-up to what uh, Grigory Osipov asked. Uh, and we talked some um, about this a little bit with Christoph Zitzen also, about this uh, philosophy of sound and how you, you know, a lot of people connect that to the, the signature movement, the, the large movements that create the large sounds. But could you tell us, you know, if you had to teach a Skype lesson or a Zoom lesson to someone and try to explain to them the concept of sound or if they could do an exercise to try to pursue this sound, what would you tell them to do? How could they even start to embark on this journey? Um, I mean, the it's now of course it's a big chain, it's a big book you're opening now. Let's let's keep it short. Um basically you what we let's say want to achieve or let's i'm i'm just claiming this now the main goal i think we all want to have as general sound is to have a warm sound a warm resonant talking now about vibraphone or marimba which have resonance yeah um, um and about this then you have of course if you have hard sticks you will never sound with volume in the bass, of course, but if you have, let's say, a standard stick, uh, you still have good chances to have a good resonant sound if you have the right technique. Um, and then it's about weight projection. In case you're like, yeah. you will never sound voluminous. Okay, of course, easy to understand. And then the next thing is, okay, somehow to get volume, you need to get a lot of weight through this strange stick into your hand, which is for us natural to go with your arm, then somehow to go with your stick on the same, on the instrument um, to produce really a resonant, a nice resonance of, of the instrument. Um, and of course, in the end, you also have the possibility to choose very wool mallets whatever but then you have just one octave where you have this technique working and you go higher then it doesn't work anymore so we need to be all rounder of course so we need to have somehow it in our hands if we want to sound now very with much attack a little bit harder or you have a little bit you want to have more resonance you get more loose and you let really the stick go through the bar um, and sometimes what people don't understand is that, of course, in order to sound voluminous, you have to have a certain movement because, yeah, movement is the, let's say, the reason to, to sound applies for every instrument, of course. Um, and sometimes people are having just attitudes because it's looking nice. It's like, ha, 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 okay, cool, hands up. <laughs> um, but my approach is the total opposite. The movement is, of course the necessity to sound. So when I'm going up, I have a reason because I want to go down. <laughs> um, so everything is plausible in this case. So I'm some actually evading extra movements because I'm quite strict where I want to go, where I want to play, how I want to, you know, apply on the instrument. And 
yeah, basically like this, I'm also looking, let's say, in my performances because everything has a reason why I want to play like this. And sometimes it can be high, but sometimes it's also, of course, not applying when I'm playing small. Awesome, awesome. Well, everyone, you heard it on here, folks, first. <laughs> Kai just gave us a, a full-on explanation. Um, all right, so there was one more question which dropped into our Instagram um, in German. And I won't pretend like I know how to speak German, but I'll pretend like I know how to speak German. This is from uh, Dimitri Konovalczyk, who said, I just try, I don't speak German. Let's see if Kai understands. Wie entspannst du dich? Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Was it close? Is yeah. it a nasty word? In no. <laughs> <laughs> Ksenia, what, is that, what does that mean in Serbian? Kako se opustas? All of our listeners are on board now. Everyone knows. <laughs> Everyone gets it. No, but tell us, Kai, what did I ask you? And uh, could you answer the question? Uh, he asked, how do I relax? Okay, good. So good. Uh, I relax in not practicing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, basically, this is it. Uh, when you practice a lot, I don't know, a setup, the first thing what is burning is your wrist and your underarm, let's say, right? Um, so when everything is burning here, I'm flexing my arms in the opposite to open it up or to make like counter movements, practice something else. It's the same. I don't know, when you play cymbals for 10 minutes straight, Everybody can work out as much as he wants. He will not be, you know, able to play so nice marimba or vibraphone after it because everything is a ha. Oh. So, yeah, it's about not overdoing it. And, for example, in really intensive practice sessions, when in the end I practice whatever, let's say now 12 hours a day, you build up from six, the next day seven, the next day eight, and then at some point you reach it. So it's really, uh, your body is always adapting to it. And uh, you never should go from vacation mode to let's go for it completely mode because yeah, it will never work. And then you can relax as much as you want. You will never achieve it because your body says, sorry, no, without me. Um, and for me, it's the balance is the most important. When you know your body, when the head is tired, you can make a break and you continue more because you can trick your head, your mental state very fast, actually. Uh, when you say, I don't want anymore, uh, it's like, no, you do, and you can, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, physically, you really need to somehow find like moments where you say, okay, open the window, no music, a little bit of relaxation stretching whatever um and then you go fresh again in it and yeah this is what i can recommend always help me wonderful um all right so we wanted to also talk to you about your fantastic debut album um and Obviously, we actually wanted to have this as a topic of conversation to investigate um, on this episode as well. But we, I'd like to start off with you telling us a bit about the process of your album, how you came up with the repertoire. You already touched on it a little bit um, and how the recording went, because you mentioned to me that it was quite the adventure. So go ahead. Tell us a little bit. Yeah. So like um, basically when I won Trump, I wanted that it, I decided it was finally time to record a debut album. Like I was recording already in other projects with Wave Quartet, for example, um, and other formations already CDs, but I so far didn't have my debut, my own CD. Um, and I said after Trump, okay, it's really now time. I am going to do it. 
Um, so basically the whole project started 2018. Everything was going after plan and I said, okay, um, I wanted, I think after, like originally it was planned to do it in March, 2020. Um, then I, RD happened, I wanted even better. Yes, keep on the pace, everything cool. And then of course we all know it, Corona happened and uh, finally borders got closed. Working was not possible anymore. Nobody knew. Can you go in a hall? Can you go in a house? How many people can work actually with each other? In Germany, it was different rules than in Austria. And I was like, okay, can we record in Austria? Can we record in Germany? Where is my sound technician? He was stuck in Italy. He couldn't go across the border and it was pure chaos. Um, and also I was apart from my setup basically because I went to Germany to home and my setup at this point was in Austria. So everything was chaos. Um, and then of course we said, okay, let's do it after the whole lockdown phase which ended i think in april end of april beginning of may again um and we said okay then we do it in june um and then it was like this that uh, what i mentioned before about hand problems was that i was not practicing setup in germany uh and i started here and i was like motivated <laughs> and then it was the first time and also now the only time in my career that my left hand although i'm left-handed uh was getting a little bit problematic mm. um, and then also the the recording which was planned in june had to be postponed uh, and of course then in i think it was yeah in july again the media cases corona went higher and everybody's like okay we're gonna close this we're gonna close that calls um, was again so i had to have three possibilities also to keep in mind uh, where to record because everybody is in home office, so I could not reach people in the halls available for recording. Um, so for me, it was like this, that even one day before my original recording, I didn't know where to record. <laughs> like uh, I, Jesus, do you people hear that? That's crazy. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really chaotic, I have to say. And uh, it took me a lot of energy because this... You cannot relax you cannot focus on you actually practicing for your cd you have to organize constantly you need to you wake up and you the first thing what you do is you check the news in germany you check the news in austria because everything is different uh, and you need to know okay which tendency is now where do you have a lockdown here do you have a lockdown there how many people can work now together do we have whatever reasons to leave the house at five in the afternoon or something like this then it's also like i cannot finish at five let's say you know um, so it was very stressful, um, but the hand worked at this point again. So I was very happy and we really said uh, also with my uh, sound uh, engineer, um, he also said, Kai, no worries. I will come wherever you want me to come. So just tell me wherever. And in the end it was really like this. I think in the evening before the recording, I told him finally, okay, you have to come to Austria <laughs> because oh Germany God. is not going there. Um, but it was, as it was a very spontaneous thing, as professional it turned out, this is the thing. We were both really focused and we knew what we want. Um, and, uh, yeah, it turned out beautiful. I'm very happy with the results and also with the, with the label, they were of course a little bit like, ah, it's late, but, uh, <laughs> they said, okay, if you have problems in your hands, of course, I mean, you have to be the best you can be. And if you have problems, of course, it's impossible. 
So they were very, everybody was very supportive and uh, we were all working despite all the problems all together and uh, yeah, worked out great. It's a gorgeous album. It's really, really, really a beautiful album. And it has, you know, the, the big hitters that, that everyone can recognize, like Le Bonnet and Inner Zones. And then there's uh, music that was freshly written for Kai. I mean, just such a beautiful, then a bunch of guitar music that just sounds so amazing. I mean, it's it's a gorgeous album. Um, but I wanted to ask uh, sort of, so the process has lasted for about two years, you said, in the making. Um, how did you select your repertoire? Was that just you? Was that you and the record label? Did you have a producer who impacted you? Did you bounce the ideas off of Marta or, or Bogdan or I don't know? How did you decide? I actually, in the end, decided everything by myself. Um, like, uh, of course, First ideas after winning Trump was, okay, I think I'm going to have Merlin inside in my CD mm -hmm. um, as best example. But the more like time passed and the more concerts I played in 2019, then the more also my repertoire shifted and the more I realized actually I really want to present myself different in a different way and to go a little bit out of the typical percussion repertoire. Um, and what was me or getting then very important for me is first of all present myself uh yeah as i am as diverse as i think i perceive myself um and to yeah play pick uh, play play music which i really would like to hear also by myself um on also then which i want to re be yeah which i want to present myself as best and yeah, I thought a lot about repertoire and I decided for myself, Interzones is, although it's already now quite a standard piece, let's say for vibraphone, but it's a piece which I feel extremely home because this complementary of being perfectly in, in rhythm with the tape, but then actually using the tape as a chamber music partner. So not all the time being, you know, playing along and the tape is something here and you're going here parallel, but uh, I'm using it really in a chamber musical aspect in a way as a partner. So sometimes I am underneath and then you take the motif on or the motif is taken on by the tape from you or something like this. Uh, and this joyful character combined with this necessity, necessity, sorry, necessity uh, to play perfectly in rhythmic um, preciseness uh, was always intriguing for me. So I knew, okay, Although it's maybe not the most innovative piece for to present myself, I still want to have it in because also in my recitals, I'm having it inside. Um, Rebon A, the same. And also, I think that uh, to have a piece by Xenakis inside a repertoire on your CD is always good because it's always in the cover. You have, of course, the... Um, the composer's written. Um, if you have people like Xenakis on the booklet, I think it always helps because mm. people can refer to also people which are not percussionists, which is, I think, very important in case mm. you want to present yourself out of the box, which was also a reason for me. I didn't want to play a, or to contribute a CD just for percussionists. Um, I wanted to play a CD which is applying for everybody. It doesn't matter if he's not a musician or a percussionist or not a musician. And then was also really important for me then, for example, you mentioned already Xenia, the guitar arrangements from Takemitsu. I was very curious because I came across again, of course, guitar music. 
And uh, yeah, Takemitsu is for us percussionists actually always a synonym of avant-garde. It's very, like we all know, rain tree, very, uh, yeah, yeah avant-gardic, avant-gardistic, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, to hear then his pop music arrangements of old classics, you know, for guitar was for me very fascinating. Uh, and I tried a couple of them and I realized actually it's beautiful and they work so nice on the marimba because of the resonance and really to give space, not to be all the time with energy and uh, not to show all the time virtuosity in sorts of energy and, and speed. I wanted to go the totally different way here and say, okay, I'm now really romantic and taking it really, you know, really back and nice. And so it was also an aspect which I really wanted to have inside the CD. Um, and yeah, in the end, it became eight pieces uh, in which four are newly, how's it called? Newly produced, newly mm -hmm. recorded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was in the end quite, let's say, an innovative process, everything. Um, and also, yeah, I wanted to have the final, uh, the, the setup piece of the third round of RD from Yongi Pak Pan inside, mm -hmm. which was the commissioned piece for RD for the semifinals. Um, and also here it was the case, sorry, I have just to blow the candle. It's not burning the house. Um, <laughs> And I wanted to have this piece inside because uh, it's also it's sound it's called sound pillars in English I think, mm -hmm. and it's a huge setup mixed with a lot of um, metal sounds, high pitch metal sounds and uh, and drums. So it's really extreme in its sound, uh, yeah, spectrum specters. Um, and here is also more about colors and sound resonance, what is more dominant, where you have the fundament, where you want to be more precise and brilliant, something like this. And it's also more about clouds and pillars and less about playing again fast. Um, and I like the general aspect of this piece a lot. Um, already in RD times was for me very nice because I was, uh, let's say, very late in the preparation of RD actually. And uh, this piece was for me very nice because I could really relax. I knew exactly, I had a clear idea how to play it and to let music breathe, which is um, still in percussion music not happening too often. It went far too often into many instruments and a lot of happening and a lot of speeds and everything at once and you actually don't realize what is now gong, what is now tubularel, what is now woodblock, whatever. And her composition is very precise, like she's introducing instruments very carefully and then just in motifs. Mm -hmm. And the whole piece for me was uh, intriguing from the beginning. And I in the end then also decided I want to have it on my CD too, because uh, yeah, it was a different aspect. And of course it's contemporary. It's really like, yeah, a different aspects as on the CD from, from this side of, of genre spoken. And yeah, I just in the end decided to go as diverse as possible on it. 
Yeah, it's a it really a gorgeous eclectic city, the city that everyone should uh, check out. But the thing that I wanted to tie this into is, you know, a lot of us, um, a lot of us think about recordings and what do they all entail. And unless you go through it, obviously you, you do not know. And so I went through a little uh, search um, online to see what's out there for recording a classical CD. Obviously, this is very different to producing a pop album, and there's actually not a lot out there. It seems like it's a well-kept secret by either those who have gone through the right or just the producers, I don't know. But I did find one thing, which I'm, uh, we're going to link in the uh, box below. Um, Tina Chansey, um, she wrote an introduction to making your own CD for the talented but inexperienced musician. And this article um, talks about everything from choosing your repertoire, which is what Kai just explained to us, to why it's necessary to have a producer, to choosing you know, a producer and an engineer, the difference between classical and non-classical recording, stereo versus multi-track recording, choosing a recording venue, obviously depends on whether you have the options or it's coronavirus time and then you've got to narrow them down, um, planning your recording schedule, what about when things go wrong, a sample budget, how to prepare for the very active recording? Because obviously you're thinking here as a performer primarily, you don't want to be the producer and the recording engineer. Although you could, you know, in your quote unquote bedroom studio, organize everything. You just don't, simply don't have the capacity to focus on playing and organizing and miking everything up and producing everything. So um, I thought that there's plenty of really interesting conversations in there. And one thing that, you know, that everyone should start with is obviously choosing the repertoire. And what Kai said absolutely echoes what the article said, which is there are two really good reasons for choosing the repertoire. One is uh, that you are really good at something, or two is that you really love it. You may have other reasons which might support it too. Like you could say that, you know, no one else has done this before in this way, or the repertoire is new, or the music is timeless, so it adds to its glory, um, or you want to you need to push your career forward, you know, you have tenure or you, you simply, you know, you need this to, to move a step up. But these should not be your primary reasons. Like I need to get my career going forward. I'm going to get an album because that's probably not going to end up being so well. And then there are really bad reasons. Like everyone has a recording of this, so I should too. I mean, unless you have something to say, really don't. That's a waste of time and money. Um, your family member likes it or your, you know, your spouse, your teacher, really like a piece. So you're going to record it and put money to an album. Don't. That's a really nice gesture, but don't. Um, it's a new piece. It sort of sucks, but nobody else has recorded it before. Don't put your name there, especially not if it's your debut album. Don't do that. I mean, seriously. Or like, I should record something. Don't, don't do that either. It shouldn't just be something. Or I want to be famous. I don't think anyone got famous got famous. They, they absolutely amplified their name. Something happened, but nobody got famous over a classical music recording overnight. So, I mean, if you want to go and be, I don't know, Adele, that might be a thing, but within percussion, that you're, you're, that's not going to happen. That level of fame, if you're expecting Maseratis, not happening from, from a classical recording. So there's many other virtues that you should pursue and ask yourself. Um, uh, and I th then thought that it's really interesting, you know, how you pick your producer or your engineer and what, you know, you should do when things go wrong, because things are definitely going to go wrong. There's going to be a noise in the room when you're recording and you're going to have to figure out what to do with it because you've already booked everyone and you've paid them and that's your room. Um, so what are you going to do? Um, or a recording is going to go wrong and you might lose uh, 
a take or two or three. Maybe you're recording video as well and the camera, you know, simply turned off while you were recording. If you have too few people there to help you and you're managing everything on your own, you can absolutely expect things to go wrong. Um, and obviously the art form of showing up for the recording and being very well prepared, but also being so focused during the recording session, however long it lasts, is that's a completely separate, I feel like skill on its own because some people are wonderful performers, but then there's a reason why there are studio musicians because these people are so great at focusing inside a studio and just recording the hell out of stuff. And for us, it is a, a new way to, to learn about ourselves. So I wanted to, I guess, go around the room, first ask my uh, lovely co-hosts, Ben and Carly, what they thought was most interesting about this, uh, what came out at them and then direct a question at Kai. So. Well, aside from, there's like such good advice here, even, you know, down to like, make sure there are other people, even one, one thing was if you're recording 40 minutes or more away from where you live, like think about getting a hotel, like that's a great, you need to be in the best mindset. There's so much information here. And, and like saying, said, we'll, we'll link it below and you, you all should check it out. But I think one of the best things was expect that things are going to go wrong and here are some ways to deal with it and manage it. And that's like, it's it's crazy to think like everything is going to 100% go smoothly when we're recording like it's not it's not going to happen it's the same like if you're playing a live performance you're not going to nail every single note in every single passage it's not going to be 100% but it's about how do you recover how do you come back from that one other thing I thought was interesting in here is she the author writes at a, at a certain point she's talking about the costs of everything and she says if you are paying the other performers and it's like what uh, you should you should pay performers unless you know you're doing so you have some arrangement like you have I mean you're in a chamber group together and nobody's getting paid or or something like that but gosh if you're hiring an orchestra to accompany you on a concerto recording <laughs> you should pay the orchestra just, just I thought that was strange all the information is like spot on it's so good throughout and then it's like if you're paying them but it, then you know outlining the the relatively large amount of money you're paying for a producer and an engineer and you know so many and the, the rental of the venue budget for paying musicians uh you will get a better product i would say that yeah absolutely absolutely and she actually has this this is fully itemized and i took out the only thing that i didn't take into account was like get a harpsichord tuner okay i'm, I'm not gonna pay for that if i'm recording a chamber uh album but everything else that she put down from like pre-production to post-production you know mastering mixing everything it's about fifteen thousand dollars from what she says if you are renting a venue for 400 bucks and then paying for a producer engineer and you know, you need $25 to eat. She's really budgeted in everything. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. They, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I'm sure that things can range far up and down, especially if you have an engineer friend who loves you, or I don't know, you have some help from a grant or something, things can absolutely change, but whoa, that's, that's really not a small amount of money. Um, anyway, Ben, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, to me, it was also just the cost. Like it was just like mind blowing, like, oh my God, like, yeah, that, that does cost a lot. And it, I'll kind of come up to a question for Kai actually in a roundabout way here. But like one thing I think about is like, Ksenia, why do you teach at a university? Well, you know, like because you love music, you love teaching, but also because you need to get paid. <laughs> I mean, like, you, you wouldn't show up to your job, I don't think, if, if they weren't paying you. Um, and with these you know, albums, obviously the, the goal is to, to sell units and hopefully ultimately at least recover your costs. 
Um, but at, at that rate, like the costs, you know, and I think she was very thorough. We could probably cut some corners if we had a local connection and we knew what we were doing and all, but still, I mean, at least $5,000 to actually record an album. And one thing I've heard Casey talk about before is like, is in, in the year 2020, does it even make sense to record an album anymore? Um, and uh, it's, I, it's so much more difficult to record basically a recital album like Kai has just done than to do a recital. Uh, because a recital, you chip a note in Merlin, obviously we're not hoping for that, but it happens and it's not a big deal. But on a recording, obviously, especially of an iconic piece like that, you want to get every single note right every single time. Um, and it, it, there's so many great opportunities now for like one-off recordings of like, you know, like a well-produced YouTube video of a piece. Um, and if you've invested in a nice computer, some nice AV equipment yourself, I, I think that the, the idea of going in one afternoon and recording a, a good quality YouTube video is not to me nearly as intimidating as trying to record an hour's worth of music. Um, but even in my experience, like Carly and I recorded uh, John Sothis Kyoto when we were students at Miami. And I mean, it was like a several hours long, very uh, difficult recording session for all of us. I mean, and we, we worked at it and we, we got a good recording, but the live performance next to that was, I mean, that was nothing to, to perform that piece live. And so uh, I guess what I'm getting at here is, uh, and to be clear, I don't, I don't think that recording an album is a bad idea. If I made it sound like that, that's not what I'm saying. But uh, Kai, what, what was it that, you, that drove you to, I, I must produce an hour long, full like CD style recording rather than like, yeah, let's do a couple promo videos. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. Everybody, I think, who wants to make a CD needs to get uh, clear for himself for what actually, right? Uh, and for me, or I mean, actually, for everybody, is now nowadays like this. You don't get money out of a CD. Let's say uh, it's not like this that we are getting platinum albums and we are in the rich like all rock, uh, rock and pop groups. Uh, latest after streaming was invented in the internet. This is not applying anymore for us. Um, so this was also clearly not my intention. I'm not doing this to get rich because I know nobody is. So uh, yeah, also not I, me. Um, but I did it because of idealism. Um, and I wanted to really do it. Um, I wanted to make this as a step to see, uh, to say, okay, this is me. I want to present myself exactly like this. Um, and to just say, uh, yeah, to shout out to the world, okay, hey, here I am, this is my program, if you're interested, eat it. And of course, for um, for self-advertisement, if you want to get hired for festivals, uh, for other reasons, of course, you need to be accessible on some platform, let it be now YouTube in a video form, or, or audio, of course. Um, so it was very, yeah, important for me to really record a CD for myself and uh, to be then represented. And I don't need to work. This is the thing. Uh, if you want to be present in media or uh, in like, yeah, in some, with some repertoire that people get to know you, you don't need to work for this. If you have a CD, you're accessible whenever people want to hear you. Um, and you can always refer to it. You have a proper a program, you have an agenda, you, you have festivals coming then to you because they think your repertoire really suits to the to the yeah to the festival's purpose. 
um, radios are in the best case also performing or, or playing your music because uh, it's interesting for them it's new and especially I think also for percussion to have percussion recordings still there is not so many percussion recordings happening or published released every year uh, and uh, I think it's always something special if something comes up there's of course a lot of um, piano trios, uh, string quartets, and all the classics, the, the let's say, uh, royal instruments, you know, and uh, when you have then um, other instruments like harpsichord, like percussion, I, th I mean, at least I perceive it like this, uh, you really perceive them, you really see them, they, they are a spot in the whole release repertoire every year, and um, yeah, for me then, especially as percussionist myself, I just wanted to, sounds now very romantic, let's say, but I wanted to really make something to make myself immortal. You know, this is out, it's out, and uh, that's it, you know. Did you just say to make yourself immortal? Yes. <laughs> I love it, definitely. Kai, you have been granted immortality through your playing, <laughs> so don't worry about it. Thanks. Yes. Good job. Uh, if I can, if I can say something about the the whole process, um, which might be very interesting for other percussionists, uh, is if you're actually deciding to record a CD, um, a solo percussion CD, um, really check carefully which in the end is going to be your sound producer, uh, your engineer. Because even if you have good labels and even if they are very good, it is very like often happening that still for them percussion is very exotic. And I think I can even say it like this, that percussion is one of the most difficult instruments to record. Because first of all, of the length and the width and the, everything is huge, depending on which instrument, which piece you play. Uh, the setting is totally different um, and the physics are totally different. The, the sound um, of a bass drum is on a screen totally different produced than uh, a splash symbol, for example. And still in the, the engineer has or the, the music producer has to, get, to give it in a whole balance that as when you listen to it in a concert, it would not matter, but of course, on the electronics, you see how different they actually are reproduced in the machines. And uh, especially for for recording engineers, sometimes it's really also for them a big challenge. And then the question, what which sound do you actually want? Because sometimes they don't know it. And sometimes they think they know it, but then you're like, hmm, actually, it sounds not so nice for me, you know. So it's always the thing. You need to have a clear idea. First of all, how do you want to sound? If everything sounds like xylophone on the marimba and you actually play however, how voluminous, um, of course, there is something wrong. Um, so you need to find an engineer and a producer um, which actually fits to your approach to the instrument, which is very difficult. For me, for example, I had the luck to work together with uh, with a producer which works since basically decades already for percussion. He was working with Bogdan, with Christoph, with me. So we know us already since basically eight years and had a couple of projects together. And 
he knows how to trigger the instruments, how to really get the volume out of the bass drum, not just the punch and the same on the marimba, you know, to amplify the bass more with resonance and um, support more the, the, the resonance in the upper octaves and not just the, the stick on the wood and all these this, um, problems which we all know and he knows them too um, and this is something very valuable for me and what's very important to choose um, finally actually an external um, producer and not the producer which the, which came from the label actually so it's always a lot of you know you need to decide for yourself what is actually best and then of course decide um, with which label you're doing it. I had the luck to have a label which was very supportive and very open. And they said, it's your product and you can decide for yourself how to do it. You're also paying for it. Um, and they said, of course, it would be super nice if you use our, um, our uh, engineer and our producer, but if you know it better, if you have somebody close to you, do it with him in a different in under different terms then of course but uh, still the option was there and uh, it was for me very important so especially if there's percussionists going for recordings ask around in your field which already recorded and see or see the results how they recorded now it's very easy anyway in, in streaming times um, then you see if this is a sound which you actually also would like to have yeah that's very well that's very well said and you can always look this up it's either in the booklet or in the information just look up who worked on that album and if you can't reach out to that person take that album to your producer and engineer and say i like this can we make it sound like this it's really important um, especially do that early because you can't fix everything in, in post even though people say that you can it's not possible um uh, kai i have a million more questions for you but i'm going to try to cut it down to two short ones one is um can you tell me what was the main difference in competing in Trump and ARD? What was, was one more challenging than the other or how? Uh, RD was more challenging than Trump in the end because the repertoire was more diverse um, and the length of the pieces, like the whole repertoire was, I think in the end on two hours. Mm. Um, and Trump was, I think, yeah, one hour and 20 or something like this. Um, so, especially as RD was also covering the general instruments, timpani, snare drum uh, as well, which for me was a very important matter actually, or something which I always can just say, okay, it has, we are percussionists, these instruments, although timpani is not necessarily seen as a solo instrument, it's still, we need to play it. We need to know how to play it. Uh, same as it cannot be that we want to be soloists, but we don't know how to play triangle in the orchestra. So we need to all do our homeworks uh, and they have to be done. And this is also a reason why RD was, of course, in its wide range of instruments of its uh, yeah, importance of repertoire. Yeah, it was very vast, very big and then takes, of course, a lot of time um, to prepare and Best example, when you practice all the time Rebo A and B together and then you go back to snare drum, you can say, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so the, the organization, how to schedule your repertoire is then also really, you need to plan it's your days. You need to know what to, in the end, practice, actually. You need to start with snare drum and make setup then, best example. Or then it's the question, you when do you want to make setup? Is it, is it good if you, in the end, do it in marimba after it? Because you also might be like this. 
Um, so it's all the questions about um, how to schedule your day like this. And RD in this was really intense, I have to say. Um, but it was in the end also because I had a certain repertoire, which was very challenging, I have to say. I might have also chosen easier, but I decided to go for it. And uh, yeah, was in the end also my problem, but I managed so it's okay. But it was, this is why also I can say it was really more difficult than Trump. It worked out in your favor, definitely did great. Um, lovely. And for the last question, I actually wanted to bring up something that you and I chatted about, and I hope this is okay. Um, but uh, about two years ago, you and I were talking about experiencing some really difficult times. Um, and both of us realized that it was right after graduating school. And I remember you mentioned that you experienced a, a period of uh, sort of severe hardship with motivation, um, where after graduation, sort of you didn't have as much involvement and so on. Um, but, but guess what? I mean, you got out of that winning these two huge competitions, which, by the way, I don't think any percussionist has, has ever done that. Usually people would win one and then just say, I'm not doing the other because I don't need it because my career is fine. And you're the only one who's like, I'm doing this back to back, no problem. Um, and but right before that, I feel like it was like the dark right before the the dawn. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I respect you so much because I think you're so uh, you're so mentally and emotionally strong, and you're so smart. Can you tell us about that? I, I feel like that will help people also if they see that you went through something like this. Then maybe this Corona won't seem as difficult, or if they're going through a same period that's just not as busy um how did you how did you stick with it what what helped you get out of this can you tell us more i mean the the situation i was in at this point was um basically i finished uh, in, in in university at this point and it was the question then as i was at this point then still like in austria was the question okay uh first of all what do i want to do uh, where do I get also my daily bread paid, you know, um, because of also the, all the idealism we have as solists, um, we still need to earn money. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes um, so something which is, in, especially in the percussion scene, very a difficult topic, I think, is this uh, thing of, okay, I'm opening now a big uh, box, let's say, but it's always the thing of like uh, either solist or orchestra player. Uh, and I always despise it, this either or thing. This is why in the end, I also somehow managed to do both before Corona. Mm -hmm. um, but it was always this, uh, somehow orchestral play, a player had to practice less and earn more money than some idealist who practices all the time in the, in the chamber, you know. <laughs> um, and this is also... And this is also the thing, I think also I, I can say it out loud that this is the thing why we need to be out of the box. It cannot be that you just practice alone for all the time. You need to do things, be active, practice with others, have different projects, play orchestra, mm. learn the big music. Um, but uh, for me, it was at this point a crucial point to see, okay, do I want to stick more into an education with solo? As I did so far, I mean, I did already uh, have in Austria both ways somehow, um, but I didn't know at this point, okay, do I focus more on solo for myself or do I go more in orchestral now? Um, and I think it was when, 2000, you said it two years ago, 2017. I think 2018, like yeah. Uh, 
Um, and then actually, I had a lot of really good talks with my teacher also, which helped me a lot and also supported me in my thoughts and my motivation. Um, and in the end, we said, okay, either way, you can do what you want. But then he was like, but you know, there's this time Trump coming up 2018. It's actually a big percussion competition. Um, and I said, okay, actually, you know what? I will do it. But my other projects, they have to continue because I always wanted to do more for me. Although I did, of course, big competitions and uh, mainly people see me as a competition player. I, for me, competitions are always the pre-step for, for, for everything. Um, it's in the end a reference. If in the best case, if you win it, it's a reference, but nothing more. People mm -hmm. can refer to it. You don't need to know me, but you can know, okay, RD, okay, good. Or Trump, mm -hmm. done, reference. Um, so the whole game of, of performing starts after winning or after competing, you know. Um, and despite then in this time being for me a motivation to continue actually in the solo area, um, yeah, it was a difficult pathway for me because it's always like this. You practice so much and then there's sometimes the question like ah, actually for what you know <laughs> mm. and uh, i think it's a phase which i think everybody is going through at some point yeah uh, and the only thing i can say is just don't give up and be open for other solutions for options don't stick all the time you know like i'm here and nothing is happening yes okay then go out to the world and have projects present yourself be in the scene do whatever um and, uh, and then it actually it also turns out maybe in a totally different way than we might expect you know but still something is happening exactly exactly well thank you kai so much for being our guest today it was a true pleasure Thanks for sharing all your wisdom with us. Um, thank you, Carly and Ben, for hanging out. Well, Ben just gave us a wave. It was a silent <laughs> wave for those who are just listening. Um, it was a fantastic episode. I learned so much, and it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. And thanks again for coming on our podcast. We're glad we finally caught you. <laughs> Good luck with uh, all your future endeavors, be it February or whenever, hopefully earlier, whenever things happen. But we're looking forward to seeing you on stages very soon everyone we'll see you on episode 265 and then the new 2021 which hopefully will be way better than 2020 <laughs> bye everyone happy new year from the ad percussion podcast